Welcome to Good Sex at NYU, a podcast about sex, relationships, health, and mental health in a sex-positive space. So if you're looking for sometimes serious, sometimes funny, and always sex-positive discussions, then you're in the right place. I'm Danielle Elliman, Associate Director of Sexual and Relationship Respect Services at Counseling and Wellness Services. I use she, her pronouns. And I am April Fellers, a nurse and sexual health educator at the Student Health Center. I also use she, her pronouns. We are two white, cisgender, heterosexual, female-identifying clinicians, one with a medical background and the other with mental health experience, who seek to create a space that is inclusive of all identities, backgrounds, and perspectives. Activation warning. The content of this podcast is about sex and relationships. The topics might be uncomfortable and awkward, but we hope that listeners will sit with this discomfort and consider new ideas and not judge others for their identities, likes, and desires. The intention is for the conversations to be positive, but at times we may talk about harms, boundaries that were violated, and trauma that has occurred, which can be difficult for some listeners. Take care of yourself. Listen to your body, and if needed, turn off the podcast and consider what your body and your mind needs to move through the reaction to difficult content. This could mean turning on a TV show, listening to music, calling a friend, going for a walk, or reaching out to the Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999 or Safe Horizons at 1-800-621-4673. Today on Good Sex at NYU, we are joined by our NYU colleague, Brunhild Krang, who was the Associate Director of Psychiatric Services at Counseling and Wellness Services for 17 years and continues on the team in a new role as the part-time staff psychiatrist. And Dr. Crane, can you share with us your pronouns and if there's anything else you want to share with our listeners about your background? Okay. My pronouns are she and her and hers. My background, I've been working as a psychiatrist for about 45 years now. All throughout, have occupied myself with issues of gender and sexuality, in addition to my traditional work as a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And maybe that explains how I got (laughs) interested in this topic. Yeah, a little bit. So welcome to the podcast. You've had a few, like you said, articles and things that you've written about. Can you share with us just a little bit more about like what drew you in to this particular topic around sex and gender? I think it all started in my medical school days. I came of age in Germany in the 1960s and 70s. And this was really an important time for the women's movement Mm. and women's liberation in the U.S. as well as in Europe. Women were obviously inspired by the civil rights movement. I'm commenting on this historical period from the point of view of a cisgender, middle-class white woman, which certainly has shaped my outlook. We were attending consciousness-raising groups when I was young. And women tended to share their relationship and sexual experiences. And we're all working towards gender equality. Mm -hmm. That was a very important concern of ours. We read books of important feminist writers. Mm -hmm. Some of them will sound uh, a little dated now, but Mm -hmm. they had a big influence at the time. One was Simone de Beauvoir, Mm -hmm. a French philosopher. She wrote a book called uh, The Second Sex, where she really advocated for equality between the genders. American audiences probably are familiar with Betty Friedan. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, she wrote The Feminine Mystique mm-hmm. in 1963, and she was instrumental in forming the National Organization for Women and kind of initiated the second wave of feminism, which is otherwise known as a positive of a source for female sexuality. Another important event that shaped my growing up years was the ap- approval of contraceptive pills. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm in the 1960, when the FDA approved of contraception. Now we take the availability of contraceptives for granted. Mm. And it's hard to remember what a revolutionary change it was. Mm -hmm. It expanded the sexual options for men as well as for women, particularly for a young person like myself. It helped to overcome the fear of unwanted pregnancy. This allowed people to explore sexuality outside of marriage most importantly to myself at the time, women could pursue higher education without fear of unwanted mm. pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Can I ask, was the like second wave feminism and the approval of contraceptives, did that happen around the same time in Germany as well as the U.S.? Well, I think it lagged a few years behind. And for me personally, it lagged a few years behind because in 1960, I was too young to use contraceptives. Mm. But sort of towards the end of the 1960s, they became used in a widespread way. Okay. Well, I feel like it is really topical because, you know, with some of the things that are happening, there's threats to contraception and there's threats to women's health. So I think that it's all still really helpful to sort of have that in historical context. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the idea that we would have to relitigate Roe versus Wade is inconceivable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. For us, the women's movement made another very important contribution to women's sexual confidence by questioning the myth of the supremacy of the vaginal orgasm Mm -hmm. as compared to orgasms resulting from clitoral stimulation. Mm -hmm. You know, the nature of female orgasm had been a source of scientific, political, cultural, and social (laughs) debate for more than 100 years. And In fact, there really is no hierarchy of female orgasms. There are no superior or inferior types of orgasms. Orgasm is orgasm. Yeah. Pleasure is pleasure. (laughs) Yes. Women have the potential for experiencing an orgasm from sensory input of various erogenous zones of the body. The idea that only the, the vaginal orgasm was a sign of a mature person had a very inhibitory effect on women and made them insecure Mm -hmm. about their own sexual needs and desires. Mm. And there was already so much to be insecure about from the point of women, but this had a inhibitory effect. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how much in detail I should go about (laughs) this, but, you know, women can experience orgasm from the sensory input of various erogenous zones in the body. There's the clitoris, then there's the intravaginal region called the G-spot, the cervix, as well as stimulation of non-genital areas Mm -hmm. like the nipples. And with experience, women can integrate one or all these erogenous zones to enhance pleasure and orgasms, either during masturbation or partnered sex. And I like to compare, you know, having sex a little bit like playing the piano. Mm. Experience is definitely helpful. That um, really changed our stance and our experience in relationships. The notion that the vagina was the main sexual organ 
unfortunately took hold in medical textbooks in the 19th century. And this idea was further solidified by religious prohibition against masturbation. Mm. So there were a lot of societal forces to fight against. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, psychoanalytic theory was a mixed blessing for women's sexuality. On one hand, Freud recognized that the repression of sexuality could lead to profound unhappiness and neuroses. But on the other hand, he sanctified the vaginal orgasm as the sexual expression of a more mature person. Mm. And in this fashion, psychoanalysts contributed to creating a hierarchy of orgasms and it made women feel insecure about their own sexual needs and desires. And the classification of mature versus infantile orgasm was not based on any objective anatomical or physiological findings and did not correspond with the subjective experience of the majority of women. It arose because of an overly close comparison with the male sexual patterns. Hmm. Did you learn those things in school to become a psychiatrist, or were these things that you do going in, and that was kind of what influenced you to become a psychiatrist? In medical school, sexuality often gets taught relying on the basic biological facts rather than historical and political mm. and social context. Mm. So doctors don't get a critical view or aren't encouraged to question the sort of established textbook content mm. of what they're being taught. When I was in medical school in Frankfurt, I was lucky because Frankfurt had one of the three institutes for sex research in Germany. Mm. There was one in Berlin, one in Hamburg, and one in Frankfurt. Mm. And the director of this institute was a very progressive person who was influenced by the Frankfurter School mm. of Philosophy. It was a remarkable innovation in medical education that he invited medical students to come to lectures and seminars in his institute. And the faculty of that institute taught human sexuality in a very rich interpersonal and historical context going beyond those basic mm. biological facts. Mm. That's that, great that you had that. Yeah, but it sounds really rare for psychiatrists to get that kind of training. Is that still true today? Yes, I think unfortunately, to date, doctors still do not get taught sufficiently mm. about sexuality. So often they are not really prepared or not really very comfortable addressing mm. these issues with their patients. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like even in the emergency room, when we'd have people who are experiencing sexual assault or anything related to sex, it was like, ooh, doctors were a little nervous, a little hands off and not really feeling prepared to talk about it. So I'm wondering if that, you know, could be bulked up in the medical schools a little bit more. I'm sure people are talking about that already or there's already advocacy for that. But yes. I think that's really important because, I mean, sex is an important part of people's overall health and life, and mm -hmm. it can't be left out of the equation. Absolutely. Yeah. I would yeah. totally agree with that. Yeah, sex ed is not, you know, we, we know that sex ed in K through 12 is not great, and probably not getting advanced in medical schools either. And so how is that, you know, people are stuck with what they learned, the bad stuff they learned in K through 12 once they go into medical school, and it's there, there could probably be a sex ed class as well. And then, you know, you and I met on the gender and sexuality team and care for 
gender nonconforming students and transgender students, a lot of that in the medical field, you know, it seems like there are people now that are doing residencies or internships or fellowships specifically for medical gender care, but it doesn't seem like that's really being incorporated into medical school either. So then that's a big, another big portion of, of patients that are getting forgotten or not being yeah. taught about. Yes. You know, a lot of controversy about the care for transgender patients has arisen lately. Mm-hmm. And I really feel quite concerned about that. Seems to really interfere into the, you know, doctor-patient relationship mm-hmm. and into the provider's ability to offer specific and tailored care to what the individual needs, rather what some societal forces have declared sort of as ideological guidance. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that is related to the abortion conversation as well. It's like when the government or other people outside of that relationship with your doctor comes in and making making decisions for you Mm -hmm. because of their own like, you know, beliefs and religion and other things that are, you know, influencing why they're engaging in laws that take rights away from us and our bodies. So I think like that's definitely concerning. Yeah. You know, of course, I agree there should be guidelines and um, evidence-based practice that informs medical care, but medicine cannot be conducted like a cookbook. Mm -hmm. Um, There really has to be some room to offer care to a person that is individualized and responds to their particular Mm -hmm. needs. Mm -hmm. Well, and I would assume that you would say that for a lot of different things, like you don't treat depression the same exact way for, you know, every single person. You don't treat someone who is experiencing bipolar in the same exact way. Like you're looking at the individual. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are some standards. Yes, there are some recommendations. You know, you can probably speak to that better than I can. But just to say that's for a lot of different things. Like even if you go into the medical side, like Mm -hmm. diabetes isn't Mm -hmm. treated always the same. Or, you know, um, I was talking on another podcast recently. I have some dermatological issues. That's, you know, I want my doctor to see me. As an individual, not just like throw medicine at me. It's like, let's have an individual chat and let's talk as relationally. Yes, you need to follow guidelines and recommendations, but like I want to be seen as an individual. Yes. Can you tell us what you've seen in your work in terms of some barriers that people have when seeking psychiatric care? In general, there's lack of access. It is sometimes very difficult to get an appointment. Hmm. People are afraid of being labeled and mis- misunderstood or misjudged. They don't know what to expect. They feel uncomfortable sharing their most personal and upsetting thoughts with a stranger, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. It makes them feel vulnerable and afraid that the other person will judge them. Psychiatric treatment is costly. Mm-hmm. One really needs to have health insurance to afford it. There's often a waiting list to get an appointment. And that's both at the Student Health Center and outside of the Student Health Center? Is that what you're... Uh, yes. To? The Student Health Center has set up services such that there is a psychiatric walk-in clinic every day for very urgent cases. Depending on the time of the semester, your psychiatric appointments are available you know, more rapidly or, or less rapidly. Mm-hmm. That really depends on how busy things are. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. But we really aim to get everybody seen within a week or two. Which is really good if you compare that like from outside perspective. I know working in a city hospital, it was something like three months wait mm-hmm. uh, to be able to get a psychiatric appointment. And by that time, people are like, I, I had an appointment. So a lot of times they would fall through the cracks. Yes. You know, and so depending on the insurance, it really does, you know, matter. 
like when you are able to get access to an appointment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in addition to the psychiatrist and psychiatric nurse practitioner that work in the student health center, we've also recruited psychiatric practices in our neighborhood. Mm. And we refer many patients there, depending on what insurance they have. I mean, I feel like we could go into probably a really long discussion around insurance and challenges around that because we t- we've talked about it here a few times that like, you know, it would be helpful if, you know, everyone had similar insurance and we could just, you know, easily connect people to services. But that's a huge barrier, like insurance and different types of insurance have different challenges. And so I know that that's something that I see as, you know, a therapist and I'm sure like that sort of translates into psychiatric care as well. Yeah. So how does someone get connected to psychiatric services at NYU? And you mentioned referring people elsewhere if they have different insurances. um, Is that an all-time thing or could somebody without the student insurance come to the Wellness Center for Psychiatric Services? Every NYU student, every student that's matriculated is eligible for services at the Student Health Center. The easiest way to get connected is by calling our main number, 212-998. 4780 and say that you want an appointment. And then you get connected with a senior staff member who will do a 15-minute telephone triage interview. Mm -hmm. And that person will ask you a number of questions and then make an intelligent assignment. So they will sort of be able to tell, you know, what staff member uh, or what team member of the psychiatry team they should best refer you to. And again, we try to get people in as quickly as possible. Time is of the matter. You know, the semester is now Mm -hmm. to get them started on treatment. Now, generally, it's a good idea to have both talk therapy as well as psychiatric services, because nowadays, really, mental health care takes place in a team approach. Mm. But being in talk therapy is not a precondition. Mm We see, you know, students who prefer to just see a psychiatrist, we will see them too. And then, of course, in the, in the course of our work, we may recommend it additionally, they also seek talk therapy. You know, all mental health professionals, such as counselors, therapists, psychiatrists, psychiatric nurse practitioners, address mental health problems. However, these various clinicians have different academic backgrounds and training. Nonetheless, they understand that people live and function in a, what I would call, biopsychosocial context Mm -hmm. and should be seen holistically. Mm -hmm. We want to treat the whole person, not just a symptom. So in other words, there are biological, psychological, and social factors that influence a person's sense of self and their emotional well-being. As psychiatrists and psychiatric nurse practitioners, we focus more on biological aspects of Mm -hmm. mental health treatment but not exclusively. We are usually the ones who prescribe medication for mental health conditions, but we want to get to know the student, you know, as a whole person. Mm -hmm. And let's also remember that psychiatric medication treatment, if it is necessary, is only one pillar of the treatment. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think that I encounter sometimes a number of students who have some stigma 
around taking medication. One of the things I like to tell them is you can go there and you can talk to a psychiatrist and you can speak with them about like what's going on for you. And you can still make the determination about whether or not you want to take the medication or not. They may not even prescribe it for you. Right. And so I think it's important to know that people have agency and not that you all are taking any agency away, but I think that there is this stigma connected to attending psychiatrist evaluations. It's helpful to hear that, you know, you're looking at this from a holistic perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Students are not required to take medication, Mm -hmm. obviously. They might think of the initial visit as a consultation. And, you know, the question is always, when should somebody be considered for medication treatment? And after I find out what the students' concerns and complaints are, and what the history of that is, and how long they've been suffering from this and so on, I will then make a recommendation, really work together with the student to develop a treatment plan. Mm -hmm. Now, psychiatric medications really presuppose that there is a um, significant disruption in the person's life. Mm. You know, many people have mild symptoms. Mm -hmm. All of us sometimes get upset or sad or we can't sleep or we're stressed or we're feeling lonely or we have relationship problems or experience academic stress, that does not necessarily require treatment with medication. The disruption of the person's life by whatever symptoms they may experience has to be significant enough to say, well, you know, in addition to talk therapy, it might be useful also to try medication Mm -hmm. treatment. Do you get a lot of referrals then from the therapists and counselors as well of, you know, somebody's tried talk therapy and the therapist or counselor might see say to them, you know, I'm not saying that the therapy is not working, but maybe you want to consult with a psychiatrist and kind of what does that process look like so the student doesn't feel stigmatized or like they're not getting better or, you know, like those kinds of things. Yes, we have a very close working relationship with our colleagues who uh, do counseling, we're counselors. They are very helpful. I mean, they have experience. They can tell when somebody's symptoms are have are sufficient severity that a psychiatric consultation might be helpful. And they often help to prepare the student by, you know, they don't have to give specific recommendations why you, you know, don't you try medication A, B, or C. <laughs> but they talk to students in general about what might it be like to mm-hmm. take medication, what concerns and worries do they have? And they sort of provide education in that sense. And, uh, you know, I can tell when a student who comes for a psychiatric visit has had a sort of preparatory Mm -hmm. conversation with somebody. Mm -hmm. That's good to know as someone who prepares people sometimes (laughs) for it, that it is helpful. So you've shared with us a little bit about what it might look like for a first appointment. What else does that include, maybe that you haven't shared yet, within the relationship? Because I know you you meet with them regularly. Um, How does that look as far as an ongoing relationship with a student or a patient? I think NYU has arranged this in a very helpful way to allow us to see students as long as they're matriculated. Mm -hmm. So the psychiatry treatment model is an ongoing one, as opposed to the counseling model, which is a short-term counseling Mm -hmm methodology. So I have seen students for four years, for eight years, mm-hmm. you know, however long they have been at NYU, which has been extremely helpful, I feel. I, of course, I see them much less frequently. Mm-hmm. 
than councillors would. But nonetheless, over those years, I certainly have gotten to know them very well and also developed a therapeutic relationship with them. Mm -hmm. It might be helpful for students to realize that there is a difference between a counseling and a therapy session and a psychiatry Mm -hmm. session. But the psychiatry sessions are often shorter than therapy sessions, so a lot has to be accomplished Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. 30 minutes. So the psychiatrists are interested in understanding what are the students' most important and pressing concerns, how long have these problems lasted, and what are their preferences and expectations for treatment. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to get them to know them as a person, and we'll ask a number of specific and concrete questions about common psychiatric symptoms. We would want to know how has their mood been, Mm -hmm. has their sleep been affected, have they noticed any changes in their appetite or weight? What other medications do they take? Have they ever been hospitalized? What's their relationship status? Can they function in school, at their job, and in their social life? Do they sometimes get so upset and hopeless that they don't want to live anymore? Mm-hmm. Or do they get so frustrated and angry that they feel like lashing out to somebody else? Mm-hmm. We might not ask them about sexual issues in the first session because it takes a while to develop a trusting Mm -hmm. relationship, and we don't want to make the person uncomfortable. But I can only say to students, if it's important to them, do bring it up in the first Mm -hmm. session. Mm -hmm. In general, I recommend that when students go see a psychiatrist, they come with a list Mm -hmm. of things that are very important to them to make sure that they get answers to their questions and that the doctor knows about their concerns. Mm -hmm. It's a good tip. Yeah. Do you think in your sessions when sex does come up, is it generally the student bringing it up or do you prompt them in subsequent sessions or kind of how does that come up in sessions and is it frequent and do people kind of connect psychiatric medications with their sex lives? Mm-hmm. I tend to plan a seed in the first session. Mm. I say to them, you know, we're discussing medication prescriptions, and medications have effects, but they also have side effects. If there are unwanted effects, side effects, or unwanted effects that bother you in any way, you know, I'd really appreciate if you gave me that feedback. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it influences a person's sleep, their appetite or their sexual response, and it would be very important for me to know this Mm -hmm. because that would then help me to make the best treatment decisions for you. Mm -hmm. Sounds like that's opening a door as well of creating a safe space where they can come to you. Yes. If something, whether it's sex-related or anything else, Mm -hmm. it's like you can share that with me. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, some students take me up on it Mm -hmm. in the first session and some don't. Mm -hmm. But I've noticed that they seem to make a mental note for themselves. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they come back to this later. And I also feel it's very important because we practice in such a international context. Mm -hmm. We really take care of patients from all countries in the world. Mm -hmm. And they come from places and traditions where people don't necessarily uh, subscribe to models of Western medicine. Mm -hmm. They themselves or their families would have other ways of addressing the mental distress, Mm -hmm. the emotional distress they are in. So I inquire about that as Mm -hmm. well. People may come from places where they're not necessarily accustomed to even complaining about emotional Mm -hmm. distress, let alone, you know, talking about their sexual feelings and reactions to medication. 
Yeah. And do some of those cultural and stigmas sort of come up a lot in your sessions? Do students bring them up to you or do you find yourself engaging in conversations around that very often? Yes, all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Because I asked them, I said, you know, how would your community look at the kinds of problems uh, that you are experiencing? How would they approach Mm -hmm. it? Is that something that you are interested in? Would you like to work, you know, with us? I feel one has to approach this with a, an attitude of humility. Mm-hmm. Not everybody can know all cultures and all details of the, uh, you know, mm. social circumstances. So uh, I encourage students to describe this to me and to explain it to me. And, you know, we engage in a dialogue about it. Yeah. Well, just to follow up as far as like your relationship with your your clients, you see them for the initial evaluation and then you do follow-ups to sort of mm-hmm. check in to see and monitor. I'm, I'm just sort of curious if there's you know anything different between like that first initial visit, subsequent visits. Are you asking a lot of details? Like what comes up in those follow-up sessions that maybe uh, you can share with us so students are aware of what that looks like as well? Yeah, I really try to prepare students in the first session so they know what to expect. Mm-hmm. Psychiatric medications have a different onset of action than things the student might be used to. Like, for instance, if you drink alcohol or smoke marijuana, you will feel an effect like within minutes. Mm. Psychiatric medications are different. They take sometimes, like talk about antidepressants, a couple of weeks to really unfold their effect. I say to the student, you know, you will take the first pill and nothing specific will happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some students sit and wait and, you know, nothing <laughs> happens. And they say, well, I'm sorry, doctor, but this medication really doesn't work. Or they stop taking it. It doesn't work. Yes. Mm-hmm. One has to have a little bit of patience. But within two weeks, I can usually tell whether the medication has started to work. And then this gives me the student's feedback, gives me then a chance to adjust the dose or to make a judgment about, you know, is this the right medicine or not? Is this particular person able to profit from this medication? And we work our way like that from session to session, and there's often Mm fine-tuning necessary. Of course, we have guidelines about the recommended daily dose uh, that has been established in studies, but one has to take into account that every person has individual genetic predisposition to Mm -hmm. interacting with this medication. People have certain enzymes in their liver that either can be characterized as a rapid processing of the medication, which would require a little higher than Mm. the the routine dose, or a slower processing of the medication, which would require a lower than the usual Mm -hmm. dose. So there are ways to adjust it, you know, and tailor it specifically. I think that's really helpful to know, and I really appreciate that. You mentioned before a tip, and I wonder if you have any other tips or strategies for people who are engaging in psychiatric services, maybe for the first time, or maybe they've had, you know, some negative experiences in the past, mm-hmm. and they, you know, are looking for a different psychiatrist and services. Yeah. Well, you know, a negative experience, uh, learning about a negative experience with psychiatry is of great concern to me. Yeah. And I would kind of want to know what was that all about. Sometimes people feel misunderstood or judged or disrespected. Sometimes they feel the clinician didn't respond in a timely manner or Mm -hmm. wasn't 
available, didn't return phone calls. They feel they were misdiagnosed or they did not receive explanations and answers to their questions in a commonly understandable language. So, you know, whatever the negative experience might have consisted in, Mm -hmm. all clinical services nowadays have set up ways that students can provide feedback. There is literally a box in the reception area where you can write a note and drop it in. Mm-hmm. But it's probably more effective if you write an email to health.feedback at nyu.edu. Mm-hmm. We do have patient advocates mm-hmm. on staff that will read these responses or these messages that you have sent them and investigate the matter. Mm-hmm. They're going to try to find out what actually happened here is there a way that we can improve our services? This, did the student really get the best possible help? Students are also entitled to request a different provider, and they don't have to give an explanation. We ask no specific questions, mm-hmm. though we are, you know, it's helpful to know why the student may wish to ask for a different provider, but it's not absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. We ask them about their preferences, and then we try to meet this as best as we can. Yeah, I think that's helpful to to hear. And I know from personal experience, with all kinds of providers, therapists, psychiatrists, doctors, you go and it's it's kind of like, oh, this doesn't feel right. And, you know, I think that we need to empower people more to, to trust their gut and to pick somebody that is a good fit for them. And, yeah. and if they go to a, a therapist or psychiatrist at the health center, knowing that there are other options, if it doesn't click right at the beginning, it's okay. And I know that it's frustrating. I know for me, I was hesitant to switch therapists because I was like, I just explained my whole life to this one person. Now I have to go explain my whole life to this other person, you know, and that does take a lot of energy. But I think it's it really is important for somebody to feel heard, to feel valued, and they're getting the best care that's right for them. So I think that's, that's a great tip for people. And I think we've probably talked about it before, but really just making sure that you feel like your provider is a good fit, whether it's a therapist, counselor, doctor at the health center. Yes. So I can only say, you know, if it really didn't work out, give it a second chance. Mm -hmm. Talk to somebody, get some help in being assertive and expressing, you know, the needs that you have so that the next person can be of better help to you. Yeah. Yeah. I like to tell students when I'm working with them that you're not going to hurt my feelings. You know, I'm an adult, I'm a professional, like if it's not a good fit, mm-hmm. I want to get you the good fit. I want to mm-hmm. get you a better fit. So, yeah. you know, please share with me, let me know, because we're not doing you or I any favors if, you know, you stay with me and it's not working for you. Mm-hmm. So tell me right away, we'll get you to someone else or we'll talk about the issues that's going on. Yeah. Right. So I think that's really important and really helpful to to hear from providers that it's okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, you're not going to hurt my feelings. I'm not going to be offended. I'll just, you know, move on and get you the services that you need and want. It's Mm -hmm. part of our mission Mm -hmm. uh, to provide excellent care to NYU students. We want them to be able to succeed. We won't write their papers, but (laughs) we address their mental health issues so that they really can function as students. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In addition to, you mentioned before, bringing up changes in sex drive potentially with medications. I'm curious if there are there are other things that you say to students to let them know that you're sex positive or that you're part of the gender team or that you have more experience in these areas so that they can feel comfortable talking to you about this. Yeah. You know, I acknowledge from the start that it may feel awkward to talk about such personal matters 
you know, with a person you don't really know. I feel that sexuality is an important aspect of life. I've spoken with many people about their sexual concerns so that I feel comfortable discussing mm -hmm. it. And, you know, if the student has any concerns about the effects of medication on sexual functioning, they should absolutely speak up. Yeah. And are there other ways that sex and relationships come up in your work? Yeah, I mean, they come up every session, practically, <laughs> yeah. even though I'm not a therapist uh, per mm -hmm. se. But, you know, students don't live in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. It's important for the psychiatrist to know if they're socially integrated, if they have classmates they get along with, if they have friends to socialize with and hang out with, and if they're involved in a relationship, mm -hmm. or if they're lonely and feeling rejected. In addition to psychiatric medications affecting somebody's sex drive or their libido, depression itself can also affect and i think on the other Anxiety side and, yeah. bipolar can also you know some people may be seeking sex more sexual experiences or not seeking sexual experiences at all the you know the mental health struggles themselves can be impactful on somebody's sex drive and so i'm curious be, between both you know kind of the underlying condition that comes in or somebody that's having a reduced sex drive while on the medications, how do you work with someone in that process to help mm -hmm. them kind of meet their goals? People usually say, you know, this the, this medication reduces my libido. That is sort of an opening gambit. And I always feel that this complaint about low libido needs a little bit of unpacking. Mm -hmm. That could mean a lot of different things, independent of medication-induced side effects. Of course, you know, we have to acknowledge that all medications have effects as well as unwanted so-called side effects. Medications are a blunt instrument. They're taken by mouth and distributed during the whole body. They do, they're not exclusively transported to the target area where they're supposed to work. Mm. There are medication side effects that influence sexuality, usually in, in decreasing sexual desire or interest. It also could result in difficulties with achieving orgasm and delay of mm. orgasm. It takes longer to come. Uh, for men, it can get difficult. It can be difficulties to get hard, to get an erection. Sometimes they might be coming too soon. It's called premature ejaculation. Or women could experience difficulties with lubrication or getting mm. wet. Mm. You know, if I want to break, I could break down the different types of psychiatric medications. This sure. a little overview. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are anti-anxiety medications, and you know, quite honestly, small amounts might be helpful mm. because they address anxiety and the sexual difficulties that are connected mm -hmm. with anxiety. But chronic use and high doses usually cause sexual dysfunction. Similarly, antidepressants. Now, antidepressants are taken by millions of people. Mm -hmm. So that is a big concern and an important subject matter. And it's sometimes difficult, like you said, to tease apart uh, which, of the, which degree of the, the, the sexual difficulties are, are caused by the underlying condition, like depression. Like the chicken and egg. Yes. Mm -hmm. And are there additional um, difficulties that are caused by the medication? The most frequently used antidepressants called SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, mm -hmm. the, you know, like medications like Prozac and Zoloft and Paxil and Lexapro, mm -hmm. most people probably know these names, could result in erectile dysfunction, delayed orgasm, 
And, you know, when a person experiences these kinds of symptoms, that really decreases their quality of life. Mm -hmm. So I think that would be an important subject matter to bring up in one session. Studies have shown that patients, the majority of patients don't bring it up by themselves. Mm -hmm. They wait hoping that their psychiatrist would Mm -hmm. ask. And sometimes they then quietly discontinue the medication Mm -hmm. without ever having spelled it out, what caused them to make that decision. And then they set themselves up for chronic depression when the side effects could have been addressed. Mm -hmm. Mood stabilizers have lesser effect on sexual function. However, I must say, they are not very extensively studied. Okay. Because sometimes the conditions have such serious problems that nobody really wants to alter the medication regimen easily. Mm -hmm. So again, the patient has to, I think, advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. The question is what to do. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, there is no perfect answer to -hmm. this question, what to do. One strategy is to wait a while. When a person takes medication, the body adjusts and kind of counteracts some of the effects of the medicine. So people in in common terms get used to the medication effects and may be able to function sexually, even though initially they experience these side effects. Other things that one can do is reduce the daily dose. Hmm. And it's important to understand that the amount of medication a person may require when they have acute symptoms is higher than the amount of medication that should be prescribed to them in the so-called maintenance phase of treatment, Mm. when the purpose of treatment really is a prevention of relapse of symptoms. Mm. You know, once a person kind of starts stabilizing and their symptoms get better and they resolve, then routinely we should lower the daily dose of the medication, and that will also make the sexual side effects less prominent. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it helps with medications with a short half-life to time the medication intake until after sexual activity has Mm -hmm. taken place. Mm -hmm. This only refers to medications with a short half-life, like Zoloft, for instance. Prozac has a very long half-life, so that Uh, approach doesn't work. (laughs) In addition, one could try to add or switch to medications that have less or no sexual side effects. Because this has been such a, you know, disruptive difficulty in in psychiatric treatment, there are more modern medications that uh, do not have those sexual side effects. And so we could add like one medicine that people may know, it's called Wellbutrin or Bupropion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it helps to switch the person altogether to Wellbutrin. And then again, this depends on specifics of the individual. There are other medicines like Mirtazapine or Remeron, Trazodone, Vilazodone, or Vortioxetine or Trintelix that don't have sexual side effects. Mm. As far as the anti-anxiety medications are concerned, it's mostly Buspirone that we would then switch to. I think that's really helpful to mm-hmm. to hear and to sort of know. Yeah, um, gives our clients or anyone who's listening just the the power to sort of ask more questions. Yes, <laughs> perhaps. Yeah, and hopefully to find a psychiatrist that they feel safe enough to have these conversations with, right? Yeah. Because what I'm hearing is there is a barrier to taking the medications with certain side effects. Yes, and you know we want to talk about those. You yes, know, and that's what the whole point of you following up with your 
you know, students is to be like, okay, what are the side effects? How can we sort of get the dose right? But also if there's something that's going to keep you from taking the yes. medicine, how can we, you know, address that as well? Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. So people shouldn't feel hopeless mm-hmm. when they have sexual side effects. It is a complex problem, like sexuality is a complex phenomenon. But, you know, there are uh, strategies for fine-tuning this, and it's got to work for the person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people recommend drug holidays. That can be problematic mm-hmm. because then the symptoms uh, can relapse. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people use so-called antidotes and other words, medications that counteract these side effects. But I'm not a, a personal friend of this because people should be on as few medications mm-hmm. as possible. You know, mm-hmm. once you start adding a second medication for the side effects, you're also creating a chance for drug-drug interactions. Mm-hmm. And more and side effects. More <laughs> side effects. And then people use other medicines. They have other, you know, conditions. They go to the dentist. They need a pain medicine. And, you know, this makes it all more yeah. complicated. Mm-hmm. So if possible, I think it's ideal to just use one medicine, but mm-hmm. that is not always possible. I like that approach. <laughs> yeah. And then last but not least, one should then also emphasize other non-medication treatment modalities. As we've learned, there are ways to enhance one's sexual pleasure. Some students might profit from couples therapy mm-hmm. or sex therapy, just to really, you know, work around this problem. And mm-hmm. there may be ways that they can enhance their sexual responsivity mm-hmm. or can engage their partner in making adjustments in their sexual interactions yeah. that might help them overcome these side effects. I really love yeah. that. You're speaking my language. I think April and I constantly talk about like expanding your definition of sex, that it doesn't just have to be penetration. Mm-hmm. And so if there are other ways which you can you know, engage in pleasure, yeah, then that is, you know, engaging in intimacy and in different ways. And so it doesn't just have to be, well, you know, can my penis get hard? Is my vagina, you know, gonna, you know, get wet? Like, are these all things that like I need in order to have penetration? But like, you can also do sensual touching, or you can mm-hmm. hug, kiss, so many different things that I think can be included in that. Yeah. And I think also the, like, if decreased sexual desire is, is the issue, even just thinking about it, and consciously deciding, okay, I may not want this right now, but I'm going to, you know, either because you want to please your partner or want to experience that yourself, if it's something that's missing, even though the desire is not there, I think that that can, that conscious recognition also can help and just, you know, schedule sex or, you know, like those kinds of things that, that people can do and to try and help themselves feel better and less guilt around that. No, this is a very important observation that there needs to be a willingness to engage in sex Mm -hmm. because desire and arousal sometimes arises as you're getting involved Mm -hmm. uh, in an interaction with your partner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would support that. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I think that we don't have to think, oh, the end goal has to be penetration if we just want to like kiss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe we end up at penetration, but you know, it doesn't have to be my sexual desire is I got to have the orgasm. Yes. Right? And so if we can just re- readjust our definitions. How did you become interested in cyber sex? I know that that's something that you have done some work around. And so I'm curious, if you could share a little bit more about that. Yeah. You know, with the invent of the smartphone <laughs> in 2007 and the wide distribution of it in by 2015, we really became aware that 
the sexual life of people that takes place online is as important as what happens in real life. Mm. So people's engagement in social media and in dating sites had a, a kind of an un, uh, unforeseen counterintuitive effect, mm. I feel. They, they, their sexual life kind of shifted uh, to virtual platforms away from, from dating in real life. Mm -hmm. And this resulted in a delay of dating in real life and a delay of initiation of sexual intercourse by one year. There are actually mm. statistics oh, on wow. this. The evidence can be seen in a decrease of teen pregnancies and lower rates of sexual diseases. Mm. And I'm sorry to say the, the pandemic was not our friend. Yeah. Mm. With its enforced social isolation, it unfortunately has amplified these mm -hmm. social trends. And sometimes I feel that people come to college now without really having had a lot of experience in real life sexual relationships. And they don't have the street smarts mm. that it takes mm. to survive the ups and downs and the hurts, the, the hopes and the, the worries yeah. that sexual relationships can, can bring. And I, I want to say a word about the role that internet pornography place mm -hmm. in this whole scenario. The graphic sexual videos have really become a major source for sex education, mm -hmm. which I feel is a concerning development. One has to remember that these videos generate unrealistic expectations mm -hmm. of sexuality. Right. Let's remember that the actors who are performing sexual acts in front of the camera are paid performance. I think of them as sexual Olympians. Mm. They enjoy ha engaging in sex. They have lots of experience and training. They can function sexually with different partners with whom they do not have an emotional relationship. And these images create an unrealistic expectation of sexuality. And it's easy to get fixated on these super stimulating and super exciting images and sexual activities. And then it becomes a challenge to transfer one's erotic attraction to a real life partner. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, it can be a lot of fun to have sex just for its own sake. Mm -hmm. However, if that is a person's predominant sexual practice, it frustrates our craving for human connection and can leave a person feeling empty and alienated. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about internet porn on our masturbation episode, and I feel like it's so important for people to understand that this is unrealistic. Talk about having communication before, during, and after, and when it comes to to pornography, like there's usually a script, and they get to have negotiations, right? And so I feel like people really miss that. They forget that this isn't real life. That's not how sex really looks. It's it's messy, and like there's laughter and there's sounds that are not going to happen on a porn, right? Like it's it's important to really sort of you know in teaching your kids or in you know navigating pornography yourself because again sometimes like you're without a partner and it can be helpful, but always to have that baseline of understanding. Okay, this isn't real life, though. Mm -hmm. Like, this is fantasy. I'm going to retreat into my fantasy world like I do sometimes with, you know, Lord of the Rings or Spider-Man or whatever. But this isn't reality. Can I also clarify the research that you've done on cybersex? Is this both people 
meeting online and engaging in potentially mutual masturbation or video sex or those kinds of things that it's not in the physical space together, but to real people? Or is it more that watching of porn or kind of what what do you include in that cyber sex umbrella? Well, I think all these phenomena belong to the cyber sex realm. I came across a very interesting book that was called A Billion Wicked Thoughts. Mm. There were two neuroscientists who investigated the most frequent internet searches that people do. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the most frequent reason people Google something has to do with sex. Mm. It's, it's uh, you know, they came across a, a treasure trove of sexual data. And so it was often pornographic content. It was almost like a look through the window of planetary stream of human consciousness, mm. they called that. Mm. And it's, you know, it was interesting because when comparing the favorite internet sites of heterosexual and homosexual men and women, a stark gender difference emerged. Men were visually oriented and preferred sexual images and graphic sex, while women were attracted by erotic stories and focusing on relationship and romance. Mm. And again, you know, from a modern person's point of view, that seems counterintuitive, mm. because in our culture, sex and reproduction are you know, decoupled, but in their most private moments in front of their handheld devices and screens, people really still unaffected by uh, developments of history and culture? Do they simply long for mating rituals and reproductive strategies of our forebears? I think we, we have to look at these findings with a grain of salt mm -hmm. and subject that to further analysis. You know, nowadays we have really a smorgasbord of sexual forms and expressions ranging from polyamory, cross-dressing, non-binary, transgender identity, self-love, sex tourism, masochisms, mm -hmm. and so on. Well, that was really interesting. I feel like research is always um, a bit overwhelming to me. So to have someone digest that and share that is really helpful. Yes. So I really appreciate that. Yes. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to share with listeners that we haven't talked about yet? Yes. You know, I think another area that has to be considered when looking at sexual side effects are the the drugs that we use, mm. uh, you mm. know, ranging from nicotine to marijuana to alcohol mm -hmm. to cocaine to the amphetamines, ecstasy, and to the opioids. Mm. All of these chemicals have sexual effects. Mm. And in general, I, you know, I'm not recommending the use of them, right. <laughs> particularly. But many of them can be helpful in small doses. Mm -hmm. But when taken chronically and in large doses, they often have deleterious effects on sexual fun functioning. I typically make that a subject matter in my conversation mm -hmm. with students as well. And I say to them, you know, I'm not saying you can never, ever mm -hmm. use drugs again, but it might be useful to try out, you know, what it's like without them mm -hmm. to kind of get a sense of the baseline mm -hmm. of your sexual life. And for young people, it's actually hard to define what their baseline is, mm -hmm. because many of them sort of starting out their relationship trajectory. Mm -hmm. And many of them don't have a steady partner yet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is encouraging them to go slow 
and to give themselves a chance to gather experience. I think that's really good advice. (laughs) Thank you so much for for coming. I feel like I learned a lot about the different medications and, um, you know, and and what the services specifically, you know, I work on the health side of the health center. And so I always love learning more about the the counseling and wellness side. So thank you so much for for joining us today and sharing all your wisdom. All right. Thank you for inviting me. If you have questions about the podcast or anything we talked about today, please feel free to reach out to us at goodsex.podcast at nyu.edu. This email address is monitored during business hours and may take three to four days for follow-up. We are definitely open to critical and thoughtful feedback, as we didn't cover everything in this episode and might have said something that was inaccurate or that had a negative impact on someone. If you have questions about your sexual health and are an NYU student, you can connect with our Student Health Center sex expert at sexpert at nyu.edu or schedule an appointment through the Student Health Center portal. Look at our show notes for additional information and resources, including organizations, articles, books, and videos. If you have urgent mental health concerns, safety issues, or you are worried that someone might have caused harm to you or that you might have caused harm to someone, then you can contact NYU's Confidential Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999. Chat with them using their mobile app or email them at wellness.exchange at nyu.edu. For anyone, NYU or non-NYU listeners, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673, the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233, or the National Mental Health Hotline. Simply dial 988 from anywhere in the U.S. Thanks for listening and tune in to our next episode where we continue to talk about good sex at NYU. Subscribe to the podcast to hear all of our quickies and interviews with NYU community members. Thanks to our content contributors for this episode, Bernadette Kerr, Alyssa LaFosse, Dr. Dominic Viney Emisa, Zoe Ragusios, and to our health promotion team, Anna Genova, Jenny Mellum, Parade Stone, and Arna Dixit, and to Gotham Studios and Karen Ortman. 